Hello, you're listening to Just Screen It, Case Studies in Creative Distribution. I'm your host, Colin Stryker, and I am not an expert in indie film distribution. I am an independent filmmaker working towards making my first narrative feature a horror film entitled The Grove. Uh, As I've been contemplating my own eventual distribution strategy, I've come to the conclusion that we need more data, more transparency, more information about how the various distribution options that are out there have worked for people. So I decided to start this podcast to help capture some of the experiences of those who have already been through it, whether successful or otherwise, and from those experiences, help both listeners and myself better understand this really complex, crazy landscape of independent film distribution today. So each week, I'll be bringing on a filmmaker who has self-distributed or been personally involved in the distribution of their film. My hope is that future filmmakers can take the knowledge gleaned from the show and use it to make their own decisions on how to best distribute their films. Hey, everybody. Happy New Year to you. I hope you all had a joyous holiday season. I'm really excited for 2024. I've got a lot of personal stuff going on. But I'm also excited because of all the great guests that I will be bringing you in the coming weeks. Today, I am talking with Angelo Thomas, a filmmaker from Columbus, Ohio, with two features under his belt, as well as a number of shorts. Angelo made his first feature while in film school called The Incredible Jake Parker about a male pop star struggling with anorexia. And then followed that up with DeRosa, Love, Life, and Art in Transition, a documentary chronicling the life and struggles of a transgender artist and her wife. Angelo talks openly and insightfully about his experiences distributing both of these films, sharing lots of good lessons learned along the way. In our conversation, we touch on a number of themes, not least of which is a frank discussion of filmmakers walking that delicate line between finding their creative voice and deriving income from their films. Angelo's openness, passion, and humility really shine through in this interview. I'm excited to bring you this one, so let's get right down to it, my conversation with Angelo Thomas. All right, Angelo, welcome to the show. Hello, thanks for having me. That's good to see you. Like I said, offline, I, I just finished watching DeRosa, very uh, interesting and compelling film. Why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. Yeah, it is a documentary about a trans woman, Felicia DeRosa, who is an artist, an educator, an activist, also happens to be a really close friend of mine. Mm-hmm. Officiated my wedding, actually, a few months oh, after cool. we finished the film. And she was a professor of mine in college. That's how we get initially met. And yeah, I'm really proud of the film. It's been about a year or so since we did it. Still extremely proud of it. I think it's the work that I'm most proud of as a filmmaker. And I'm also really proud of the way that it's been received by the trans community, the LGBT community, and even people beyond that community. Yeah, absolutely. Really cool. So yeah, we'll get, get more to talking about the release and stuff like that. But just to give you know listeners some background, do you want to tell us a little bit about kind of your origin story, how you got into filmmaking? And then feel free to you know talk about any other projects that you've worked on as well. Sure. Yeah, I feel like I always knew that I wanted to be a filmmaker. There was I can't remember a time where I wanted to do anything else. Maybe maybe acting. I think when I was a lot younger, acting was maybe something I was interested in. But it was always film. Yeah. The Wizard of The Wizard of Oz is the first film that I really fell in love with. It was sort of my gateway to filmmaking. I was just really enamored by it and wanted to know how it was made. Wanted to know how the effects worked. Like. I was five and trying to figure out how the witch melted. Like that is how I was watching <laughs> movies as a five-year-old. So always was very into it. College, I, I went to film school in Columbus, Ohio, where I live now. And 
studied film. My senior thesis film was a feature. I was the first student at that at my school to make a feature film as my thesis in like 40 years or something crazy like that. Wow, cool. So it was a huge undertaking. We shot it in nine days. That film was The Incredible Jake Parker, which is sort of a drama, sort of along the lines of The Star is Born, that it was inspired partially by my own life and things that I've experienced. So yeah, that was a huge project, huge undertaking. And then right after that, I went into making DeRosa pretty much back to back. Wow. Yeah. Been busy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What year did you graduate from film school? 2020. 2020. Okay. Oh, that's a that's a tough year to <laughs> graduate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it seems like you made made the best of it. So, so uh, can you? So you made. I, you said that you made your first feature. That was kind of your thesis film in school. Can you speak to budget at all, or kind of the resources that you had to make it? That kind of thing. Sure. Yeah. So I initially wrote it in 2018 as a screenplay, and I had the first couple of years of college. I had done some work for a filmmaker named Lee Scott, who used to work for a studio called The Asylum, making basically B-movies. And so got a lot of experience with him. And he was sort of one of my mentors in in college and filmmaking. And I took it to him once I wrote it. And I was really excited because I had, you know, put so much work into writing it. And I was like, hey, I'm ready. Let's make it. Like, you know, let's go. (laughs) Of course, that's not really how the world works. That's not how the film industry works. It's not how getting funding works, right? So I was kind of naive in that sense, I guess. But his advice was to to do something else with it initially, and then maybe come back and revisit the idea of making it as a feature. So I took that and turned it into a book, which I self-published also in 2018. And then I took the book and was went really hard on trying to sell it, trying to get it out there. I sold it to a couple of high schools and like really, you know, did the most <laughs> to yeah. get the word out about it and, and sell it and prove that there was something there to prove that there was an audience and, and that the story was worth something. I also made a couple of short films as like class projects. I was in college at the time, made some short films that were kind of adapting scenes from the book slash screenplay to show sort of as a proof of concept. And before I knew it, about a year later, we were able to secure some funding to shoot it in Louisiana, which is where Lee Scott was working at the time. And we had a budget of around 35000 mm-hmm. and shot it in nine days, which was insane, yeah. <laughs> especially for my first feature, writing, directing, producing, editing. Yeah, seriously, putting the pressure on yourself there. <laughs> yeah, it was insane, but also the best experience. And yeah. you know, I learned so much more, not just in those nine days, but in post-production and pre-production and the whole process than I could in any class that I took in college. And that's not saying anything about the classes or the you know, instructors that I had, but that's just how remarkable that experience was for me. Yeah. And it was also sort of a, I felt like a make or break or really a test of like whether or not I wanted to do this professionally and whether I wanted to do it at all. And there were certainly times where I didn't want to do it and where I felt like I couldn't do it. But yeah, I just feel like I grew so much as a person, as a filmmaker through that. And then, you know, post-production, there were, a lot, there were lots of challenges there. I initially had a theatrical release planned for that film in several states. I was like really trying to, to plan all this out. And then COVID happened oh, and yeah. everything everything kind of fell through. So, you know, it's lots of ups and downs, but really a great experience. Overall. Yeah. And that's, I think in the end, that's all you can ask for, especially, you know, something out of college, something during college, you know, your first film, I think 
best to view it as just a stepping stone, as a learning experience, not something that's going to come in and change the world. You know, we all want to, when we make our first films, come in and just make the best thing and get it into Sundance and gets picked up by whoever, you know. But of course, that rarely, rarely, rarely happens. And so it's good to kind of check your ego a little bit and just be like, okay, I'm just going to make a movie and I'm going to see how it goes and, and that kind of thing. And it sounds like you, you really did that. And yeah, I'm sorry that, you know, the pandemic screwed up the, the plans like that. It's a pretty common story that, that I hear, but I also hear that a lot of filmmakers just kind of make the best of it, you know, in, in whatever way they can. So yeah, anyway, that's, you know, congratulations on getting that done and, uh, you know, just being able to kind of jump into your, your next feature. So what was that like kind of? getting your first film done. Well, I guess, you know, first maybe tell us, you know, once you got it done, this is 2020, right? This is the pandemic. So your hopes of going to a bunch of like in-person film festivals and all that stuff are kind of put on hold. What did you do with it instead at that point? Yeah. So I first delayed it at first. It was supposed to come out in May, 2020. I had already had agreements with theaters in Wisconsin, Ohio, and Illinois to do a little theatrical release. And those plans fell through. We didn't really know how long things were going to be the way they were, how long theaters were going to be closed. So it was just sort of on hold for a while. That time actually gave me time to fine tune the film more. I went back and recolored the entire thing, with, mm. you know, with, with that time. So I'm actually really grateful. We sh shot the last scene. We reshot the last scene over that summer. So I was actually grateful in hindsight to have that time to fine tune the film, but ended up doing a, um, just a one-off uh, screening here in Columbus. And uh, I think it was August, 2020, when it was, things were looking up a little bit, but most theaters were still closed unless for like special events or, or whatever. So yeah, I did a really small screening here. And then at first we had it on Vimeo On Demand, which was just sort of a really accessible, you know, you didn't have to jump through any hoops to get it on there. It was pretty simple. And I just wanted it out at that point because everyone had worked so hard on it, myself included, and I was really proud of it and just wanted to get it out there. So it was on Vimeo On Demand for a while. Really struggled to get people to use a platform they weren't familiar with to watch the film that, you know, that I found to be a lot more challenging than I expected. But, I, you know, over the since then, over the past couple of years, it's slowly made its way onto other platforms and I think has grown a bit of an audience that way. I've had a lot of success on YouTube, actually, not making any money from YouTube and, you know, particularly, but it's found a nice little audience there. And, I've, you know, it's been really validating to see people finding it sort of organically and people responding to it. And the comments and stuff is just really nice to see. I would say that's also a film that I did not make for, you know, a mainstream audience. I think I knew what I wanted, who I wanted to find that film. And I never really thought that it would be something that everyone would be drawn to and, and respond to in the way that I, the way that I would. So yeah, now it's on Amazon. Um, it's on Apple TV. It's on Tubi, which is another platform where I've, you know, found a lot of success and with that one in particular. And then it's on some smaller platforms like Plex and some other ones like that. Yeah. Have you, have you put any kind of promotional effort behind it? Like, you know, sort of marketing Facebook ads, that kind of thing, or just kind of letting it sit out there and find its audience on its own? Initially, I did some Facebook ads for the Vimeo rollout. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, to varying degrees of success, I don't know, I also didn't have any money. This was, I was in college still at the time yeah. and or just coming out of college, I guess, but unemployed and you know, it was a COVID time. So it's just a weird, really weird time, but it has a pretty big cast and there are, you know, for you know, a film that shot mostly in Louisiana, partially in Columbus, like there were quite a lot of people who had a hand in it in some way. And I think that was really helpful in getting the word out because everyone for 
maybe half of us. It was our first film ever. So we were all really, people were really excited about it. People were having their own little COVID viewing parties and posting about it on Facebook, which was cool. Nice. So a lot of it was word of mouth and organic, which was really cool. Yeah, cool. Are you able to kind of speak to any numbers at all about how it's done on these platforms? You know, feel free to decline that. I know some people don't want to share numbers, but I always try to <laughs> ask anyway. You know, any anything, you know, I think you said the budget was about $35,000. So are you close to recouping that at all? You know, what's, can you speak to that at all? No, not close to recouping that, which yeah. is fine. You know, I, yeah, yeah. I, you know, maybe, maybe had sort of delusional aspirations at first about how, you know, about how that would go. But, and I think honestly, if, if the plans for sort of a theatrical rollout had worked out, I think, I think we would have maybe gotten a little closer so no, and you know, at this point, also just the nature of the film and what it's about and what it means to me personally, it's just, it's about so much more than, than the money, you know, that went into yeah. it. I was also fortunate the way that we raised the money really from people who believed in me and believed in what we were doing and who weren't necessarily seeking, you know, a return on their investment. It was really, you know, and that's, and that's rare, you know, it was really just people who believed in me and believed in what we were doing. And that made it really special. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's all that rare. I think a lot of filmmakers, that's how they go about it. It's sort of, I mean, I don't know if you put it into an actual formal investment package, you know, formed an LLC and all this kind of thing so that on paper, you're still putting together a business plan to collect a profit and, and you know, make a profit for your investors. Of course, a lot of filmmakers, I think, do that. And everybody kind of knows it's unlikely that anybody's going to see a profit from this kind of thing. And a, a lot of it is just about supporting a filmmaker or, you know, people with some money to throw around wanting to put their name in the credits, you know, that kind of thing. So how much of it kind of felt more like that? And, you know, uh, did, did, did you put together sort of a formal business plan for it or? Yeah, there was an LLC. Yeah. I did not have a huge hand in that, in that side of things. I was like, I was in like an officer of the LLC or something. I was a little bit more focused on the creative and on the just, more of the getting the film together. Yeah. So did you have like a producer? Did you have a producing partner in that? Yeah. Lee Scott, that I, who I mentioned. Oh, that's was, right. Yeah. yeah he gotcha. was my cinematographer, producer. He was also sort of on the ground in Louisiana. So I was able to do a lot of the things that I couldn't from where I was. But I, I do want to mention that there was pretty early on, we put out a trailer and had some local media here in Columbus. And there was a sales agent distribution company type entity that approached me and they seemed really reputable and, and I think they are reputable ish, you know, and had a call with them. They seemed interested in the film and, you know, it just kind of opened my eyes to a whole different world that I wasn't really aware of in terms of how distribution works. They sent over sort of a really long like slide deck and, and a bunch of documents about what the different deliverables would be. And it felt really, really overwhelming to me. There are also mm. a lot of things that I would have had to pay for to like package the film in a certain way to make it distribution ready. And that was a moment for me where I was like, I just, you know, also like we ran out of money the moment we stopped shooting. There was no money for post-production. Yeah. Most yeah. of what happened in post was just people doing favors right. <laughs> for me. Right. Yeah. You know, no one got paid past, you know, past that point. So yeah, that was, that was interesting. Cause I, you know, was initially very excited and then sort of found that there, were, there was a lot more that, you know, went into distribution than I realized. Yeah. And I, I think that's definitely a good lesson for filmmakers. It, it definitely, the money, spending the money doesn't stop at production or, you know, at the end of production. 
in fact, it's just kind of beginning in a lot of ways, you know, and it really just kind of depends on how much how much muscle you want to put by, behind it, how much you really want to dedicate to post-production and polish, that kind of thing, how much you want to, you know, put into deliverables, how much you want to put into marketing and film festival fees and all that stuff. Like it really definitely adds up. So, but yeah, I think a lot of filmmakers find themselves in that kind of position. They get through production because that's really what they're focused on. They just want to get the thing shot. And then they're like, oh, you know, what do I do now? <laughs> right. So, yeah, yeah. But, you know, in the end, you got it done and got it out there. And it seems like it, it sounds like it's doing OK. It's getting some some views and, you know, that's all you can kind of for at that level. So that's great. Right. So what was it like kind of making that transition into making your next film? And how did that come about? Yeah, I think I think I knew right away what my next one was going to be. I had done a short film about Felicia in college, 2017, for a documentary class that I was taking, and was not really proud of how, was not really happy with how that particular project turned out, you know, for school. But Felicia is just such an interesting person. And I feel like as a filmmaker, as a storyteller, if you know certain people, you just have to, you just, I just knew that her story had to be told. And I wanted to be the person to do it. And I knew that if it wasn't me, someone else would make a film about her or she would maybe write a book or or something. And I just knew that I felt so connected to her and to her story that I really wanted to do that. And I also wanted to make something that was a tribute and to her and to who she is to me and what she means to me and and what Gwen, her her wife, means to me. And so, yeah, I think before I even released my first film, I was already talking to Felicia, having... I remember pre pre COVID having very sort of initial conversations about like, you know, what, what could that look like and try to engage her interest in that. And also seeing what material was available to visually tell her story. And luckily there was quite a lot of archival stuff and and things that she shared with me that I was able to use. And I also, I really didn't want to be a filmmaker who does one type of thing. I did not want to do a drama and then do another drama, mm, yeah. even though, even though I think I did a pretty good job on the first one, I, and you know, I've done a short film since then. That's extremely different than those two. So I always, I want to be trying new things, seeing what I like, seeing what works. You know, I don't want to be sort of pigeonholed into doing one type of film, at least not right now. You know, I think I'm early enough in my career where I can try different things out. And if, you know, if something really takes off, like if I make a horror movie that does extremely well, then I'll probably do more horror movies. But you know, for now, I, I think it's fun to experiment and to see what I like. Yeah, I think that's really smart. Um, you know, I think like not just not only so that you don't get pigeonholed, but also just for your own growth and just for your own exploration, like find your voice. You know, you got to spend some time finding your voice and what really works for you as a filmmaker. You know, I think it's really smart to just kind of explore all kinds of different options, especially sort of earlier in your career. Just just see what see what interests you, see what you can do, see how things work. So you know, I love the idea of going from a you know a drama to a documentary to a horror film or you know whatever comes next. You know, that seems really cool to me. I, I want to actually take a step back a little bit because I meant to ask you, I, I know I'm kind of jumping around, but I meant to ask you when you talked about the distributor who approached you and I, I kind of lost that thread. Like uh, what happened with that? Did you just turn the offer down? Like, yeah, what can you comment on that? Yeah, I basically did. We had a call, Phil Garrett, who was a different producer I was working with on my first film and I had a call with them and I it just, you know... Given Phil's experience with independent film and and distribution, it it didn't it just didn't seem like it would be worth the money that we would have to yeah. spend to meet the deliverables and the different marketing assets and things like that that they would need. Mm-hmm. It just didn't seem like it was feasible that we would really anyone would turn a profit, you know. And and I think that's when my 
goals sort of sort of shifted for the that project and it was like i really just wanted people to see it and respond to it i felt like it was a story that people needed to see i made it for the point of representation and to give representation and that became more the goal and i think that was always sort of the goal but that was really clarifying for me once it once the all the numbers sort of came into play and it was like okay like this is not really feasible it was also you know the film was very very short so it would you know maybe there were discussions about maybe doing additional shooting to make it longer to make it fit certain you know windows and it was just became a whole conversation and and by that point i was sort of exhausted to be honest and just ready ready to get it out there and yep. move on to the next thing like i i think it's really important as a filmmaker to know when it's time to move on and i th- i know a lot of filmmakers who i who aren't who don't have that and aren't able to put it down and so i was proud of the fact that I was like, nope, you know, we're just, and actually after that conversation, I sort of fast tracked the plans for the Vimeo release and to just get it out there because I was ready and I already knew what I wanted to do next and just ready to move on to the next thing. So, but you know, a good learning experience to learn how that world works and that side of thing works. Yeah, totally. I I think think that sounds really wise. Are you able to say who the distributor is? <laughs> Just curious. Uh, there's a company called MPX, I believe. Okay. Yeah. I don't know if yeah. I've heard of them or maybe have and forgotten or whatever, but yeah. Did it did mm-hmm. it feel like kind of the thing where they were going to get you to achieve all the deliverables, deliver to them, and then it just kind of becomes part of their catalog and you know, you weren't really sure if they were going to put any real marketing muscle behind it or anything like that. And so all that money that you spend is maybe not really going to come back to you in any really, you know positive way. Is that kind of what it felt like? Totally. And I also couldn't really find any success stories or examples of films that they had already put out that had done well and had been on other platforms. So that was sort of a red flag to me as they weren't really able to point to films that had made it, you know? So yeah, I think that I don't, I don't think it was like a scam or anything. I think they're, I think they're legit, but it's just not, was not a good fit for this particular film. We had no name actors, you know, it just wasn't, was never going to work in my, in my opinion. Well, I appreciate you sharing that with me. So yeah, you it sounds like you kind of kind of turned your attention pretty quickly to DeRosa and you know, can you just maybe lead us through the the process? I mean, were you thinking at that time, okay, I'm going to level up to, you know, kind of the next level. I'm going to put I'm going to I'm going to have higher aspirations for getting this movie out there, getting it in front of audiences, getting distribution, maybe making money off of it. You know, what was your mindset going into making that from a distribution perspective? Yeah. Well, I knew that Part of the appeal for me of making a documentary after you know the jake parker experience was that i could self-fund it for the most yeah. part yeah documentary generally speaking you can do a lot cheaper and i did not want to have to go through fundraising and doing maybe a kickstarter and I, it's just you know that's exhausting in itself and i really just wanted to get going and and keep building more experience and this documentary felt very feasible for me i had a nine to five i still have a nine to five and I think that's great for me. You know, it's not great for not every filmmaker does, but for me, it allows me to fund my, my work, my, you know, the stuff that I really love doing. Totally. So I was fortunate enough to have the money to set aside to largely self-fund DeRosa. It was about $8,000, which is not bad at all. And also, you know, sets for me, it felt really freeing to not feel, even though with Jake Parker, I was fortunate and not having to pay back investors. I still felt, you know, that sense of, of wanting to, break even at least, which was extremely difficult. And so going into DeRosa, knowing that it was my own money and it was only 8,000 felt a lot more freeing to me in terms of the pressure that I put on myself. 
Can, can I ask, sorry to interrupt. Can I ask like that 8,000, did you kind of, was that money you budgeted ahead of time or is that, did you just kind of spend as you went and didn't really know how much it was going to cost? Like how, how did you plan for that? I think Jake Parker was helpful in having a sense of how much things cost, even though very different types of films, I knew what a day rate was for a DP and for all the, you know, the different types of people that I would need. So I sort of split it up 4,000 for production and 4,000 for post, which ended up being pretty close to what I needed. Yeah. And we actually had a little bit more for post than I needed. So we splurged a little bit on the score. We had live musicians, which we didn't really need, but I noticed that know. actually in the credits, I was like, you know, I sort of like, I, I didn't, I probably should have paid more attention to the music as the film was going on. And I, and I was kind of like, okay, this is, you know, this is a really nice score, but it, I couldn't quite tell it was digital or live or, you know, whatever. Maybe on a second viewing, I, it would have been more apparent. But then when, when the credits rolled, it was like, oh, wow, yeah, live musicians, pretty cool. So, and, and I really actually enjoyed the piece that was played during the credits too. Really nice, nice piece of music. Yeah, my uh, composer is, is amazing. He's also he's around my age, very young. This was his first feature. And so oh, nice. we, were, we were both excited to learn about like, what is it like to score a film with you know, live musicians. Yeah. And I was yeah. there, I was there via Zoom watching it happen and stuff. So for me, it was worth it. It was worth the splurge. Great experience. Yeah. Sorry. I kind of <laughs> interrupted you on that, but wanted to comment. Yeah. I think just kind of talking about, you know, kind of going into it, what your plan was, I think you said you had to take this $8,000 budget. You had sort of a specific budget in mind going into it, came out pretty close. So yeah, I mean, that, that's great that you were able to kind of anticipate those costs and not just leap into it and just spend as you went, you know, and kind of, kind of stick to that budget. So anything else on that kind of on the, you know, on the planning front, kind of going into it, thinking about your, your strategy, did you have sort of a release strategy in mind at that point, or was it just, you know, make the film and then figure it out? Like, what was your thinking on the, on the, that end? Yeah, I knew pretty early on that I wanted to do sort of a grassroots release and then I wasn't. I think I had a lot more realistic expectations after having been through the, you know, my first project and, you know, Felicia was very involved in, in the, in the whole process with me, but she would maybe have these aspirations of Netflix or Sundance and all these things. <laughs> yeah. Those are, I think, you know, you, you never know what's going to happen, but, and I certainly submitted to everything, you know, shoot for the stars always, but I think I had healthier expectations for myself in terms of, you know, not being disappointed and was really trying to focus more on the things that I could control and that I knew were in my reach. So I knew that I could do a local premiere at, you know, a great independent theater we have here. I knew that there were local LGBTQ nonprofits that would be interested in partnering with us on screenings. Like I knew I had a vision early on of that sort of rollout and was able to do that pretty successfully. And then there was you know, streaming and stuff came later and I sort of figured that out as I went along. But yeah, I would say the whole process was really just freeing in terms of focusing on the filmmaking and kind of the art of it and yeah. less on less on trying to figure out how I was going to make any money back or anything like that. Yeah. What was your, like, how long did, did production take? We shot the, so the only things we shot for this are the interviews with Felicia and Gwen, which we shot across two days. Mm-hmm. Pre-production was about three months, three or four months, and then post-production, less than a year. I mean, we yeah. shot the shot the interviews in April 2021, and then our premiere was December 2021. Wow. So, okay. Yeah. You know, pretty quick. Yeah. Pretty so, fast. <laughs> yeah. You had some. I guess you had some sort of previous recording, video recording of Alicia, or that you I think leaned pretty heavily on to kind of fill in between the the interviews that you conducted, that kind of thing. So. Mm. So you, yeah, you get it done in 2021 and then it sounds like you went out and 
went after some festivals. Can you kind of talk about that process a little bit more? Yeah, submitted to as many festivals as I could afford to. Yeah. But also tried to be really strategic in looking at festivals that specialize in LGBT films, that specialize in maybe Ohio films or or women-oriented things. A lot of festivals, even if they're not LGBTQ focused, they'll have an LGBT category, you know. So I was really looking at festivals where I thought we had a shot. I'm still submitted to the big ones just for funsies, <laughs> just to get it, just to try. And can I ask, did you have, uh, you know, because you talked about how you had a production budget, a post-production budget, did you have a sort of a release budget as well or a marketing budget, whatever you want to call it? Not really. I'm not sure exactly how much was spent on all of that at the end of the day. I will say we... Again, because of the, like the nature of the film, I think we got pretty lucky and that didn't really have to pay for like, you know, the premiere, for example, you know, the theater was very accommodating and had a lot of support from the local community here, from the LGBT community here. So I was very lucky on that and, and really, really didn't spend a ton you yeah. know, on, didn't really market it a ton. We had a lot of local media, which was just sort of earned free media, yeah. you know, and nice. so I, I really focused on on the local aspect of it, especially because Felicia in Columbus is really a, a prominent voice in the LGBT community here. Uh, if, you've, if you've been a pride in Columbus, you've seen Felicia. <laughs> you probably know who she is. So I was, you know, that was really beneficial for the film because she's the best spokesperson for the film. She is a walking, you know, billboard for the film. And she loves to talk about it and she loves to promote. So that was, you know, hugely helpful, you know, along the way. Yeah, it's good when you're making a documentary to to make a, you know, your subject a vocal, you know, sort of somebody who's vocal and out there and has a public presence like that, you know, can't hurt the film, you know. Right. Yeah. So just getting back to festivals, did you, how many festivals did you apply to, if you don't mind sharing? I think it was in the ballpark of 20 to 30, probably. Oh. Okay. Yeah, that's not, that's not too many. I mean, it's, you know, it's a healthy amount, but lots of filmmakers will apply to a hundred, you know, some apply to it. Add, it adds it's up, all of you know, math, those, but it adds up. Yeah. So that those was submission a, fees, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, I know it. Don't I know it. So, and can, can you comment on, on which ones you got into and, and where it played in, in, in those festivals? Yeah, I think we got into th- three or four, maybe five, a lot of smaller ones. We were like a semifinalist for the Flickers Rhode Island one, which is probably the biggest, won a couple of telly awards, which are nice to have. They look nice, yeah. you know, yeah, <laughs> look yeah. nice on the shelf. And then a lot of smaller LGBT festivals that we got into. A lot of festivals still, I feel like we're not in full, back in full swing or happening in person in 2021, early 2022, especially locally. A lot of the, we have a few festivals here in Ohio and in Columbus that weren't really back in full swing and we're seem to be accepting fewer films and screening fewer films. If if in person at all, it was sort of a hybrid thing, you know, but I think, again, like for me, it was about reaching the people that I wanted to reach yeah, with this sure. film. And I felt pretty good about about that. Yeah. I mean, did you have any, any particularly, you know, so I assume once you got into these festivals, you probably went to them as, as much as you could. I don't know if they were all local or were they kind of around the country, anything like that. But mm-hmm. any, do you have any you know, specific festival experiences that you had that you want to talk about? I, I didn't actually. Um, I feel like all the ones that we got into were online. So I did oh, a couple okay. of like, I did a couple of panels online, yeah. which were a little, okay. little, little strange. A lot of filmmakers who yeah. haven't seen each other's films. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> all yeah. talking on a panel, you know, with like, you know, relatively small audiences. So no, honestly didn't have, for the short film that I did since then, you know, had some more, what I feel 
traditional in-person festival experiences which were really cool but gotcha for that one didn't really have a lot of festival activity we had like four or five screenings around columbus that were sort of staggered out throughout 2022 that were really fun though yeah do you want to talk about more about that then it, it sounds like that was a kind of an important part of your rollout strategy or i, I would not even say strategy but you're kind of you know what what you were looking forward to doing with the film was kind of getting it out to the local community and LGBTQ groups, that kind of thing. So how was that experience? How did that go? Yeah, that was great. Our premiere was at the Gateway Film Center, which is our biggest independent theater here. And it's a beautiful theater. It's where my first film was supposed to premiere before COVID happened. So it was nice to, you know, to go back to the theater and I'm able to screen my second film there. Were you able to get them to partner with you in screening it or did you have to pay for them, you know, kind of for a wallet? We were able to partner. So they are a nonprofit. And then they also partner with an organization called Stonewall Columbus, which is our mm-hmm. kind of the biggest LGBT organization here. And so I said I didn't want any of the profit from the premiere. So I they split 50-50 between the theater and the nonprofit. It went directly to them. And that also kind of incentivized Stonewall to promote the film as well, because half of the you know ticket sales were going to them. So it felt it just felt like a nice structure. And also, to be honest, making a documentary about people that I'm very close with, I've always felt strange about the idea of profiting off of that personally. I think there's always, I think documentary filmmakers always struggle a little bit with figuring out, do you pay your subjects? Do you not pay your subjects? I've kind of leaned towards not doing it. I think, especially when you're friends with the person that, that you're making a film about, I think it makes things awkward. I think money money always makes friendships weird. (laughs) But with this one in particular, I just, you know, was pretty intentional about not not wanting to make money off of it. That was never the goal. And I felt it would sour things if if it had become about that. So I felt pretty good about that. Yeah, super cool. So yeah, so you have, you know, a little festival run, pretty successful, you know, kind of community showings, that kind of thing. What next? What did you do with it next? Yeah. So the president of Stonewall Columbus was actually an investor in a streaming service called Reverie, which is an LGBT-focused streaming platform, which I'd never heard of before. But he, his name is Denzel, he moderated the Q- Q&A at our premiere, and mm-hmm. he loved the film and was really a big adv- advocate for it here. And so he put me in touch with Reverie, and they watched the film, and they really liked it. And of course, it was a fit for what they do and the type of stories that they are interested in. And so they licensed it. It was an exclusive license for about a year. And I think it it was, wasn't until August 2022 that it premiered on that platform. So between December 2021, when we premiered, and then August, when it premiered on Reverie, that's, we had four, four or five screenings kind of fill that time. And then we had one big last screening in August to sort of send it off and, you know, end our little, end our little tour. Yeah. So yeah, you know, Reverie, and I, I don't want to speak poorly in the name platforms or anything, because um, I'm really grateful that Reverie gave us a shot and that the film was out there and a place that people could watch. But it is a smaller platform. Not sure if you're familiar with it. You know, there wasn't a lot, of, there wasn't any marketing, you know, that went into it. It was just sort of there on the platform. And, you know, that that was a little tough. I think it felt a little anticlimactic, to be honest with you, to just get it, you know, on a platform that was people had not really heard of. Similar to the experience with Vimeo On Demand with my first film, right? It's it's hard to get people to watch a film on a platform they've never heard of. And with Reverie, it was a little easier because it was 
free. So people didn't have to pay, didn't have to, you know, use their credit card or anything like that. But it was still, I think it's sort of a barrier still. So it wasn't until we got the film on Amazon, probably a year later, that I really started to see more traffic coming to it and people starting to check it out. Even though it wasn't free on Amazon or it's not free on Amazon, you have to pay a few dollars to rent it. People feel more comfortable doing that because they already have their payment information into Amazon. They use Amazon every day. It's, it's just a lot, a lot more convenient. So yeah, you know, I don't know. Reverie was a little challenging, I think, but it was, it's a great platform. And I was grateful to, to be on there. It's, we're still on there. It just, the exclusive agreement ended after a year and then we were able to put it on other platforms. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to ask was whether you had an exclusive arrangement with them. So you had you had one for a year, which is, you know, for for kind of a niche streamer like that, I think that's very reasonable. Obviously, a lot of distributors, bigger distributors, you you know, you sign these agreements that are like 10 years of exclusivity, that kind of thing. But the fact that you just had a year was I think pretty good and and sounds sounds like kind of a good balance between what you wanted to do with film and what they could, you know, they could offer at their level. So uh, it's unfortunate that Amazon is the, you know, it's the it's the most revered destination for, you know, streaming films these days. Although I, you know, I think Tubi is 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 pretty big right now and it's a lot of filmmakers I think are seeing a lot more success on Tubi in terms of financial recoupment than they are on Amazon. It just seems like there's a more financial a more favorable financial arrangement there. But of course, you have to watch with ads, which <laughs> kind of kind of bugs me, but yeah, I, you know, it, so did that like with, with Reverie and then and then shifting to Amazon, is that something that you were kind of looking forward to being able to do like as as the kind of Reverie thing was playing out? Were you looking forward to kind of getting it on on something that might have a wider reach? You know, what were your, your feelings going into that? Yeah, I will say when I when we got it on Reverie, I had not yet really explored other platforms yeah. at all, even even for Jake Parker. It was sort of once DeRosa was on Reverie and I was kind of not thrilled with how I didn't have it. I didn't have any sense of how many people were watching it for a while. I didn't start getting, I started, didn't start getting reports for until about until when the license ended pretty much. I started yeah. getting like reports on how it was doing, but I could tell, you know, my end of things that it just wasn't reaching a lot of people. And so I started looking into film hub, which is, you know, how I've gotten both films on other platforms. And once Jake Parker got accepted on the 2B very quickly, was on 2B very quickly, and then other platforms. That was pretty exciting to me to see how quickly I could get it out onto these you know, platforms. So I was really eager to do the same for DeRosa. Mm-hmm. I wasn't sure how it was going, if, it, if I was going to have as much luck with DeRosa, because I know that at least for a while, Amazon wasn't accepting documentaries, I think. So I wasn't sure if it was going to get on Amazon, but it did. Amazon was the first one. To, to get it. So I was very excited about that. And DeRosa has been performing better on Amazon than Jake Parker has on any platform, every platform combined. And it, we're not on, it's not on Tubi yet. I think, I think Tubi maybe licensed it or something, but it's not on the platform yet. But I'm not, I'm not sure. I don't use Tubi personally, so I'm not sure exactly where DeRosa fits in Tubi, if there's an audience there for LGBT content or not. Um, I know a lot of filmmakers have had success on there. Horror seems to do well on there. Yeah, yeah. There's a, you know, African-American, you know, kind of hub there of, of filmmakers. So I know there are a lot of kind of niches and little, you know, groups that tend to use that platform and, and find content there. So I don't know, but yeah, I haven't seen a ton of success for Jake Parker on Tubi, you know, to be honest. I think also 
I don't want to be too hard on myself, but I think with Jake Parker, I think I could have, I really think I should have come up with a different title. I think, you know, a title that's more indicative of what the film really is. I think I've learned that lesson. I think it's an important lesson. You know, I think your title for your film, especially when you don't have any name actors is huge. Yeah. Right. So it's, it's a film about a male pop star who has an eating disorder and it didn't hit me until way later that I should have called it starving in the spotlight. And even <laughs> if I, even if I personally think that title is a little cheesy, yeah, yeah. it, it tells you what it is. Right. Yeah, and yeah. I was like, you know, I should have done that because I think the title that it has is, you know, not super thinking about SEO or things like that. It's just not really, you know, intuitive to knowing what you're saying. So, oh, well, but a lesson to myself going forward, the titles are very important, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, great lesson. And, and I mean, I think the, the sort of common theme that I'm getting from you in terms of both of these movies, I think, is that you're, you haven't set your sights on creating some big sensation where you make a ton of money and that kind of thing. You've set your sights, you know, I don't want to say lower because that doesn't, that makes it sound, you know, diminished, you know, but you've set your sights sort of realistically. You've set your sights on things other than financial gain. You set your sights on learning, on sharing with the community, you know, kind of what you have to say. And, you know, just kind of getting getting things out there and, and exploring. Um, and I think that's great. I think that's really great at, at your stage or at any stage, really, to kind of view it like that and not be so focused on, you know, business business considerations, even if it's not like trying to make tons of money on the film, just everybody is so concerned about just making their money back and that kind of thing. And that's great. You know, it's great to make money back. But if you're a filmmaker and you're in it just to make your money back, like, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to personally sort of question that, that that's really a wise <laughs> thing to do. There have to be other reasons to make movies besides just making money. You know? right. So, and it sounds like you take that really to heart. Yeah. I was going to say, so, so your, your distribution then of both Jay Parker and DeRosa are th through Film Hub. You've used Film Hub to get both of those out to the streaming platforms. Yeah. For Jake Parker, I also just uploaded it to YouTube myself. It's okay. also now on YouTube. Right twice through like the YouTube movies and TV or whatever on there. But yeah, I decided to upload it before I even explored Film Hub. I uploaded it to YouTube myself because I really just, I wanted to get off Vimeo. First of all, I was paying, I don't know how much money per month to on Vimeo just to keep it up there and to keep my yeah. pro account. And it didn't feel worth it. I never really, I never really bought into Vimeo. I remember one of the first films I worked on in high school, I was doing like social media for an independent film group. And this was 2014. It was very early days of Vimeo On Demand. We were one of the first films to get on there. It was called Piranha Sharks. It was sort of like a, a play on Sharknado. It came out the same day as Sharknado 2 or Sharknado 3, whatever. Oh, wow. And, you know, I remember hearing like, oh, it's going to be a big deal. Vimeo On Demand, new platform. And, you know, six years later, I was on there for Jake Parker. And I really felt like nothing had changed. I feel like the platform had, had not grown, really looked the same. I, you know, not again, not to knock Vimeo, but but just not impressed with, you know, how, with where that platform has, has gone. So took it into my own hands and put it on YouTube. I got a little smarter with my, put my SEO hat on and did some of the YouTube tricks of putting some keywords in my title and stuff like that. And yeah, it ended up on playlists for like eating disorder movies. Who knew that that was kind of a, you know, a genre, I guess. Right. Yeah. yeah. But you know what, like the comments that are on that YouTube upload are just so special to me and just really validate all the work that I put into it. That is worth so much more to me than anything. You know, it's one of the only, if not the only films out there that portrays a, a man with an eating disorder. 
And that really matters to people. And even if it's, you know, 10,000 people, that's a lot of people that my film is given hope to, or given, you know, meaning to something like that. So that, that really is special to me, especially years later, I'll just, you know, it's been, I guess, three years and I'll get a notification of a YouTube comment of someone just randomly coming across it. And I'm in a completely different phase of life now than I was when I made that, you know, I was in college I'm now married and a whole other, whole other phase of life. So it's just special that the films can live on and yeah. people will find them organically or not, or, you know, respond to them however they, however they do. And that's just sort of the magic of the internet, you know, and, and of film in general. Yeah. I think that's totally cool. Really appreciate that. I feel almost bad asking this question because it really just does, this does not seem to be your motivation at all, but I'm going to ask it anyway, because I ask people this, that's what this podcast is kind of about. And I'm just going to ask like, how has, how is how has the money been in terms of, uh, you, you know, both, I guess on, for both films uh, on the platforms, you know, I know that like when you were talking about your community screening of DeRosa, that you weren't really interested in getting money for that, that that wasn't a concern on the streaming platforms. Has that changed a little bit? Are you looking kind of to see what you can get to, you know, just to kind of help pay back your, your costs, that kind of thing. And have you, you know, have you seen anything that you would consider success in that area? Yeah, I've been pleasantly surprised by DeRosa in particular. Nice. I, th- I would say it's made, it's probably made somewhere in the ballpark of 1500 to 2500 across different platforms with no money at all put into marketing it. And, you know, for me, that's, that's fine. I have a career that is totally separate from filmmaking that I pursue, you know, 40 hours a week. And, you know, so I don't, I think I'm very fortunate to not need the money. Right. So it's just sort of a nice to have anytime, anytime some sort of email comes through about some residuals or whatever from Reverie or whatever other platform, like it's great. You know, it's nice, nice to see a pleasant surprise. I got one the other day that was like $3 from Reverie. (laughs) You know what? I'll take it. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I'm fortunate to be in that spot, you know, with these films in particular. I never, I I don't, I don't think I would want to pursue film full time because I don't know if I would, I don't know if the passion would still be there for me. Mm -hmm. I'm very competitive and money oriented, you know, money is important to me. And that's why I'm, I like that I'm able to have a job where I can be successful in a separate career where I can be successful. And then film is the passion side Yeah, where I can make the films that I want to make and not make films that I think could land distribution or films that I think could make money. A lot of the, a lot of people that I look up to make films that, you know, are sort of engineered to make money or to get a certain, to, you know, be successful in this country or in that way, or, you know, and that's just not the type of film that I want to make. That's not why I'm in. That's not why I'm in it. I feel like I put so much of myself into my filmmaking that it has to be fulfilling to me. Otherwise I don't, I don't want to do it. You know, it's just not, it's not worth it for me. I don't know if any, if any dollar amount would really be worth, I feel like I age five years every time I make a film. So, you know, I don't, I just don't know if, I don't know if money would be worth it for me. It has to be fulfilling in some deeper way. And so far I've been able to do that. I think that's, that's totally fantastic. And yeah, it just, it seems like so many filmmakers out there get caught up. I mean, you know, it's sort of what this podcast is about too, to a certain extent is like they get caught up in the, you know, the equations, you know, how can, how much money can we spend on a movie and, you know, what's the sweet spot in terms of budget, in terms of having a hope of making movies back in this super competitive, you know, oversaturated market these days. And, you know, yeah, I'll admit that that's what this podcast is about to a certain extent, but I think that also 
for a lot of filmmakers, it boils down to the kind of stuff that you're talking about. That it's it's you know it's really you have to have this kind of separate joy for it. You can't get too obsessed with 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 numbers. And if you do, you're you know quit, <laughs> go somewhere else. You know, go go get your money somewhere else because I don't think that's what it's all about. So it's really great to hear you know the kind of words coming from you about this kind of thing and to kind of see your passion for it and you know you know the way that you you go about it. In, in in just this kind of joy of of making these films and, and sharing with audiences is really inspiring to me. So yeah, thank you for that. Just, I'm just curious, what is your, if you don't mind, what is your actual day job career? Yeah, I'm currently working in government and politics, uh-huh. which is something I'm really passionate about. Oh, cool. I do a lot of digital strategy, social media stuff is kind of where I've been. I've been working for nonprofits for a few years and then sort of made a shift into government, which I, where I work now. It's yeah, it's a it's a way to kind of work with a different part of my brain and a different yeah. side of what I'm interested in. But also I bring in a lot of the skills that I picked up through filmmaking. It's nice to, you know, be able to bring in video and different creative aspects into my work. I think it's always an asset. And and I think I think all art is political. So for me it's not that <laughs> yeah. it's not that far removed. Yeah. And if you look at the films that I've made, like it's certainly not that far removed. So, you know. I, I think it. I think it makes sense for me and who I am as a person. And I'm passionate about it, and I and I find it fulfilling in a lot of the same ways that I find filmmaking. Honestly, yeah, super cool. So yeah, okay. So back to my other question: like, what's next for you? Do you have another film in mind? Are you working on something else? Like, where you know where are you going next? I do. My next film is called Somewhere. It is a take on The Wizard of Oz. Oh wow! Which, okay. You know, feels pretty big for me because that's my you know it's my favorite movie. That's why I'm. I think that's why I'm a filmmaker is yeah. my love for that film and that story. So it's pretty ambitious. And it's one that I am really trying to spend a lot of time on in terms of the the writing and the development of it. And then and then we'll see after that. You know, I, I think my plan for now is um, I want to feel really good about it on paper. And then I want to, I think what I'll probably do is do sort of a short film or pull a scene from it and try to do a really nice sort of proof of concept of what of what this could be and then go from there. I have a lot of, you know, people who believe in me and want and want to work, want to help me, you know, make films and stuff and yeah. Unfortunately, a lot of times I'm I'm not interested in making the films that they want me to make. You know, some of the, you know, some of the the people that I've mentioned, they'll give me a call and they'll be like, "Hey, we're looking for uh, you know, horror, or sci-fi pitches or genre pitches." And I've tried to like wrestle myself into writing a, you know, horror movie or even a Christmas movie or something. And I, I just have stories that I know I need to tell. And I, I can't, I can't not be authentic to, to that. And, you know, this one in particular is similar to how I felt after doing Jake Parker. I knew I wanted to do DeRosa after DeRosa. I knew that I did a short film in between, but I knew that this is the next one for me. And maybe once, you know, I get this one done Maybe a Christmas one will be next. I don't know, or a horror, or one of these other types of things. But yeah, I just have to pursue what my heart tells me is the next one to do. You know, yeah. so yeah, I'm going to do it, no matter how long it takes, or awesome. you know, how, how much I age. <laughs> yeah, I think that's totally awesome. It, it does sound. You said it was kind of. You feel like it's kind of more ambitious, and it, it does sound like it, it, probably not something you're going to be able to finance by yourself. I would guess. And so, and the, t- the fact that you're talking about making a, a proof of concept kind of thing sounds like you're kind of thinking about money, you know, like you're thinking about how am I going to raise financing for this? And that does, you know, bring back those questions of if you're going to raise money, how are you going to make money? You know, 
and you get you get kind of caught up in that loop. So I'm curious, like, how do you how do you feel about that? Does that feel you know kind of, kind of you know shifting gears from something where you just kind of put in your own money and just you know made something you know purely kind of from your heart that you didn't really necessarily expect to get a lot of money from? Does it feel weird or intimidating in any way to kind of shift gears into something that probably has to have kind of a more formal kind of business approach attached to it? Yeah, but I, I think I think I've learned a lot. Yeah. From my previous films, or I think that I am ready to take on something that is maybe a little more commercial. I mean, what I'm my vision for this is still very indie, very me. You know, still has a lot of a lot of me as a as a filmmaker. But I think I've also proven, even if I haven't proven from a business perspective that I can, you know, deliver whatever you want to use. I think I've proven that I can make relatively high quality films on a low budget and in a short amount of time. And I think that's worth something, you know, I think I can wear a lot of hats and wear them pretty well. So I think I, you know, I think I'm proven that I know what I'm doing and so, and that I, I can be trusted with money <laughs> to, yeah. make, to make a movie. So, and I think that's, I think that's worth something. So in my focus for now is writing it and then doing a uh, proof of concept and then we'll go from there and see how that goes. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll look forward to, to keeping track of that. Do you have a sort of a timeline in mind at all, or is it just kind of like, write the script and don't worry too much about timeline yet. Just make it good. That kind of thing. Like what's your thoughts on that? Hoping to shoot the proof of concept in summer 2024. Okay. feels like a good time and it's mostly outdoors. So being in Ohio, Uh, we kind of have to. (laughs) I live in the the Pacific Northwest and I have exactly the same concern. Like (laughs) if you're going to shoot outdoors, you got to shoot in the summer or deal with a lot of rain. So yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the plan for now. And then we'll, uh, We'll see what happens after that. Yeah, sounds good. So where can people follow your work? Where can I follow You know, progress of, of somewhere? What do you want to promote? Yeah, I have a website. It's very bare bones right now, but it's angelothomas.com. I'm working on fleshing that a little bit more. Very active on social media because it's my job. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I am on Facebook, Twitter, or X, and Instagram. I'm at I'm Angelo Thomas on all those platforms. I'm on YouTube as well, which is where I upload most of my stuff. But yeah, I would say Instagram is where I tend to kind of document my filmmaking stuff most in Facebook. That's all for today. Thank you, everybody, for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please do rate and or review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you listen. That is the best way that you can help me grow the show and reach a wider audience of independent filmmakers and others who just want to try to understand this crazy, crazy world of independent film distribution. As always, feel free to contact me directly with any feedback or suggestions for the show. You can find me on Twitter, or should I say X, or Instagram at DarkRoseColin, or you can email me at Colin at DarkRosePictures.com. That's Colin, C-O-L-I-N, one L, at DarkRosePictures.com. And by the way, DarkRosePictures.com is my website for my feature and other projects. Its purpose is not just to promote my films, but to tell the story with honesty and transparency of my own personal filmmaking journey. So if you want to follow the process of an independent filmmaker from development to distribution, this is a great way to do that. So check it out, darkrosepictures.com. Anyway, I want to thank Angelo Thomas for a great conversation, his openness and honesty about his experiences. 
I want to thank Jeff Rymoon, as usual, for his great work editing this episode. I have more great guests lined up in the coming weeks talking all things indie distribution. So stay tuned. Keep getting those movies out there into the world. And as always, thank you so much for listening. See you next week. 